creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. You own 2,000 acres of land in northern Minnesota. Not a human, not a building, not a train in sight or earshot. Just nature and all it has to offer. But what happens when you're gone? What happens when you can no longer take care of it? Would you give it away? Well, if you did, you certainly would be a loon. Today on Culture Click, we get to hear part two of our discussion with Mike Freed, better known as Loon. Today we'll hear about his experiences in the Boundary Waters and get a little more detail about why he gave the property away. Join us as we get to hear a little bit of history of the Minnesota Boundary Waters and of a northern loon on today's Culture Click. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack from um, the statement, and some of it's a little more on the interesting side. Some th- some of it will lead to other questions I have for you. But uh, you mentioned how crows would help the wolves, the almost uh, I guess they call it a symbiotic relationship they have. Correct. And that really jumped out at me because uh, I don't know how much you know about world mythology, but I know that I'm in... a big fan of Joseph Campbell. Ah, but um, there is an entity in Japan called uh, a Kori. A kori inu, which translates to sending off dog. And what's interesting okay. about this creature is the way it functions is very similar to what you just described. In mythology, if this dog was hunting you down, you'd have be swarmed by these other kinds of entities called uh, yozumi, or yozuzumi, which means night sparrow. And they're like okay. these birds that people uh, aren't entirely aware of, or they don't know what they enti- what they look like. They just uh, define them as these black birds. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting because what you just described to me is something very similar to this legend, where the birds will show up, and then you're shortly after you're attacked by wolves. So, the crows will show up. They'll call the wolves. Wolves attack, and and it, wow, it was just really interesting to see that because um, it, it, I mean, assuming that this is the same thing. I'm not sure if it is, but assuming it's, it's the same event being recorded, it's like, hey, we've uh, observed these behaviors for centuries or millennia, and we see that it's been happening for a very, very long time. It was just interesting to hear that story from you and being aware of this uh, of this entity of mythology and saying, like, wow, they uh, correlate. I think uh, one of the parts of the chapter is uh, what one person can do, and there was, uh, my, I added the, the element of campfires. When you get in the outdoors and you're walking around, and at night we we call it hiker midnight, hiker TV, it's a campfire. You end up cooking your meal on it, and you end up staring into the cold till you get cold or wet or tired. And then you go to sleep, and in the morning you try to erase it by getting rid of all the ashes and making it look like there was no camp there. So Around the campfire, a lot of major conservation decisions have been made. Uh, we have Yellowstone Park because of the Washburn-Langford-Doan expedition of 1870. Jefferson sent a group out to look at, uh, well, it wasn't Jefferson, that was Lewis and Clark. I apologize. It was after the Civil War. And we had this Louisiana purchase from France, and we didn't know what was out there. So um, the president sent this entourage of military people, and they sat around the campfire on the Yellowstone River. And one of the former military fellows that led the expedition, he said, gosh, this would be great to have a ranch, a huge ranch on this side of the river. And the other fellow said, well, I'd love to have one on the other side of the river. And the third guy 
was the young lieutenant that was taking care of things, uh, doing the management of the trip. And he said, we can't do this. This is such a great place for the people of our country. We have to say this as an example of some of the most magnificent wild things. I mean, there's fountains that shoot up in the air of hot, steamy water, and it erupts all the time, and there's bubbling pots. And the newspaper editors in New York were calling it Coulter's Hell. It was, you know, like brimstone, hell and brimstone. And it had the religious fervor that this was the closest thing to a hellish environment. And he was saying, no, this is amazing. The elk come right down to the river, and they're not afraid of us. And uh, we have to eat those elk to get back home to St. Louis. And he said, we need to report back to the government that this is a place that needs to be safe for all Americans. So that was the kind of philosophy that I had about the lake. This is too great to split up into tiny little pieces. Right. Let's keep it for all Americans. And in this case, for all Minnesotans. To go back on these boundary waters, you've given us a great interview, but I'd love to go into a little more of your personal experience in the boundary waters. And I, would, I want to ask, was there any part of the Bounty Rotters that really just jumped out at you? Something that was like mysterious, that really intrigued you, or something that you wanted to learn but never got to learn? Uh, was there anything that was like terrifying or dangerous that you were like, okay, maybe stay away from that? I want to hear your experience in the Boundary Waters. Okay. <clears throat> I'll be glad to go back and reconstruct that. But first I have to give a disclaimer of your story about uh, the wolves. Uh, and the birds in Japan, the mythology. Mm -hmm. Robert Redford did a record on the wolves in America, and he said there have been no known um, uh, incidents of wolves eating and attacking humans in the United States. And this, he put this record out in the 70s with the wolf music and the howling and everything that we go up to see near the boundary water. There, there have been cases in Russia where wolf packs surrounded a kind of a starving village. And there are other places in the world where wolves have actually attacked and killed humans. Of course, of course. And recently this has happened. But it's such a rarity. And yet, if you talk to all the kids who are out adventuring in the outdoors, they think they're going to get eaten out there. And it's not true. This is... If you know what you're doing in the wildness, this is a benign environment. It's more dangerous to be in the city and to eat processed food than it is to live out in the wilderness. But most people have the opposite view. Right, and part I of that. a lot of time taking young people in the outdoors. They're very afraid of the wrong things. Right. Yeah, and part of that has to do with, like, the media and how it covers these events. You know, you, we hear people uh, panic about going to Hawaii because they're worried about things like shark attacks, but in reality, you're more likely to be killed by a coconut, you know? And That's absolutely right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but the whole thing is, what are people focusing on? And people are going to focus on these big uh, events that are so rare to happen, but because there's such a focus on it, people think it happens often. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm well aware of that, and thank you for putting that disclaimer out there. I, I think our audience would really appreciate that. Um, but uh, let's get back to the issue. Uh, I grew up and uh, my parents both worked very hard uh, in the business. And then my dad sold used cars and people would come up on Sunday and he'd be mowing the lawn in Hastings, Minnesota. And they'd say, 
Clarence, come on over and show me that 53 Oldsmobile. How much you want for that? And Dad had dropped the lawnmower. We had a pushmobile lawnmower. And uh, he'd go over and show the guy a car. But he was just cruising around with his family looking. He wasn't going to buy anything. My dad said, we got to get out of town. So when he was about in the mid-50s, which was about the time I got the urge to hike the Appalachian Trail, my dad said, we're going to get a cabin somewhere on the lake, but it's got to be within, you know, an hour and a half of Minneapolis. So it ended up being a small lake in northern Wisconsin. And he had a friend with a cabin. We'd go up there for a vacation. And then finally we bought a little cabin at the edge of a lake. And then we would come up on Friday and Sunday noon, we might cook up some fish and get cleaned up and then we'd come back and my parents never spent a week at the cabin. They only left at nine o'clock on Friday after the business closed and we'd go up and spend Saturday along the edge of the lake and fishing and then they'd go back to work. I was the first person that spent a week at the cabin. I was studying for my comprehensive the college and you have to do comprehensive exams uh, for your undergraduate degree, just like you would for your doctorate later on in my life. So I spent a week at the cabin studying biological textbooks so I could pass my comp. And so the edge of the lake became a very kind of a sacred place for me, and loons were the spirit of that. So then my college roommate took me with his sons up to the Boundary Waters, and we went up from Tosti to Sawbill Lake. I, I came in through Ely only once. I always came in up the north shore from uh, Two Harbors north to uh, Grand Marais. And the cabin we built was up by Hovland, Minnesota, on Lake Superior. But those are the areas that you can drive up and get into the eastern part of the Boundary Waters. So we would do the Cherokee Loop up at Sawville. And we'd spend some time with young people and uh, camping out. And that's how I got this inspiration that I love this part of the country. Then later when these pieces of land came up because the forest law changed, forest companies could no longer write off the expenses of holding on to a piece of property for 20 or 30 years. In the United States, we have an oil depletion allowance. So... People can write off from their taxes oil exploration costs, corporations and people also. And the same thing was true of forestry taxes because it was such a long time to harvest the tree after it had been, uh, land had been clear cut that forest companies were given uh, special tax incentives. So the state of Minnesota stopped doing this. So the Potlatch uh, and uh, Weyerhaeuser and many of the big timber companies started selling off their land. And it was cut over land, and it was was inexpensive. Nobody wanted to buy it because it was so totally wild. There were no roads to get up to it. So that's how I ended up buying up little bits of this land over a long period of time. I had these six wild lakes, and I wanted to make sure that people in Minnesota would have the opportunity to go and see and study and understand this very unique boreal ecosystem.
Well, do you have any stories about your explorations of the lakes after you've purchased them? Because I'm sure you've had moments where you've gone out on the lake after, you know, owning that large part of land. And was there anything that really just jumped out at you during those times? Well, the, the uh, metaphoric story is when my son and I were up near Weird Lake, which is a long, skinny lake after you've gone up a very long, skinny lake called Jack Lake. You've come out of Burnt Wood Island, obviously it was burnt over, and so you've got a few scraggly white pines, and you can camp on this island. You go through Smoke Lake, you go through Flame Lake, you go camp on Burnt Island, so you get the picture that this cut over land literally burst into flame because the first loggers just left all the slash. They left the tops of the trees, the branches, and everything laying there. There were no forestry laws to require them to replant or anything. So then the great fires came, the Hinkley Fire in northern Minnesota, and some of these fires covered thousands and thousands of acres. And my uncles were on the Hinkley train as it went through a wall of flame to get out of Hinkley, the last train out, and they were hanging on the bars on the outside of the train. Everybody was trying to get on the train because the town of Hinkley was surrounded with fire. And when they got off the train, after it got through the uh, flames to the next town, their hands were burned holding onto this hot iron pipe that they were hanging onto the train. So I had histories from my family from the past of what happens when you completely mismanage a resource, make a lot of money by cutting it down, but if you don't replant and take care of the slash, you're going to get forest fires. So we were camping up and we ended up on Weird Lake. And many years later, I asked my son if I could use his computer and what was his login, you know? And he said, well, my handle on the computer is Weird Lake because we sat on a little piece of granite that slid down into the water where you pull your canoe up and the northern light came up on the sky. We already had our tent up. We had a little fire and we watched the northern lights dance across this wild country up here, Burnt Lake, Flame Lake, Smoke Lake, Weird Lake, Jack Lake. That's part of the Cherokee Loop. So I realized how impacting that was on my son's life. That here was his uh, name for his Hotmail account was Weird Lake. But he never told me that, boy, I always remember that time on the granite rock, Dad. <laughs> that That is a beautiful story. It does lead me to... I guess my final question before I end the interview. Are, are you a fan of Mark Twain, by chance? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, have, you ever, have you ever read Life on the Mississippi? Yes. Right, so you're probably aware that one of the themes, at least one of the themes that I remember, was that as Mark spent his life on the Mississippi, he learned more about the Mississippi, and he, he, he kind of memorized it. But he... He talked about how it lost its mystery, it lost its magic, it lost its, um, what really made it foreign and something to explore in exchange for that knowledge. Would you say you had mm. the same experience on the Boundary Waters? Well, yes. You have to come to grips where I took my daughter out, and uh, we went to some of the same places, but we didn't have as much time. <clears throat> and so um, she and I had to get up in the middle of the night and restart the fire. You know, you can't have a campfire anymore in the Boundary Waters. It has to be in the little grate. It used to be you could have a fire anywhere, but not anymore. So we had to get up at uh, 2 in the morning and restart that fire because we were both, our feet were getting close to being frozen inside our sleeping bag. 
and we were. Uh, she said, "I've never been so cold in my life." So her experience wasn't like Weird Lake, where oh, the awe and majesty of the wilderness. It was. This is really cold, and if you can't get this fire started, you could die out here. It's it's a balance of both those things. Right. So I want to summarize that the things that I thought were important about one doing the film. Of course, that's the the contribution that my life is to the people of Minnesota who took care of me and, and raised me and sent me out into the world. That's why I made this gift. But I want to constantly remind you that the storybirds are out there. Here's the next young generation filming these new things that are happening. And at my stages of life, I want to be able to give back. Levinson was a sociologist who was the first sociologist to write about the stages of life. And he said that this is the stage where you look back at your dreams and you develop a self-awareness and a wider perspective of your life only as you look back over it. So that was my dream and was my imagination to talk about how the wild world is so much more complex than we understand. And then what one person can do. So I hope when this book, Wild Hope, comes out, Brock Bergseth, who was a uh, marine scientist in Australia, uh, was writing this book. And he discovered the research on isolation and uh, despair and suicide rates uh, among young people all around the world. It was the United Nations study. He was interviewing to be an Oxford professor, and he came across this study uh, that was done by the United Nations. And it wasn't a study of young people in the United States having despair and suicide. It was a, uh, many nations in the world. It was a cross-cultural study. And young people are grappling with the fact that the planet is becoming diminished by our economic activity, and that survival is in question right now. And they are despairing that there's nothing I can do. Well, the point of the book is, look what one person, look what Kenny Solway did. He decided to go in and help teach young people in Alma, Wisconsin. It's just a small contribution, but there is a complete new understanding of the world. And I want to close with this idea that I used to teach nature interpretation and communications at Oregon State. And I would say at that time, the largest creature on earth was a blue whale. It's so large that a rainbow trout can swim through its heart and major vessel. To give people an idea how big this animal is, because we're never, unless we're pretty skilled divers, we're never going to see a blue whale up close. And then the sequoia, the largest plant that we know of, and it's largest in volume. It's not as tall as the largest Douglas fir, 350 feet, but it's got so much volume in its trunk. They're so huge that when you cut down these big old sequoias, as many of them were cut down in the Grove of the Giants, and 100 people could dance on the stump of some of these old trees. And this is all wrong. All the things that I taught my students back in the 70s, is absolutely incorrect about the world. In 1992, they discovered that there was an organism far larger than the uh, sequoia tree, and it was called the humongous fungus in Crystal Falls, Wisconsin. 
It was uh, discovered at about 90 to 100 acres was one fungus, the honey fungus, spread over 100 acres, much larger in mass and volume than a giant sequoia, but it was underground. No one could see this interconnected mass, this interconnected network of life of just one organism. <laughs> then shortly thereafter, uh, in the early 90s, they discovered that there's one tree in Utah in a national forest that is an aspen tree. We love to watch the aspens in the fall. People drive to Colorado and Utah to look at aspen trees. But this one tree was discovered to be all the same tree, and it was 103 acres in size. And it had 42,000 individual stems. And this forest of individual stems was one tree. They were all interconnected. They were all clonal. In other words, they had exactly the same genetic basis. And it was astounding to think that there's one organism that's 103 acres. You can go walk in and sit inside an organism. Right. And I'm telling young people, nobody has studied whether that tree knows you're sitting down inside the tree. Does the tree know you're there? If it does, does it communicate in any way with other parts? We know that when beetles bite trees in Montana, the pine beetle infestation has been well studied because it's killed so many thousands of acres. The pine tree releases hormones into the air, releases chemical messages into the air, that tells other pine trees downwind that I'm being attacked by a beetle and you might want to do something. And the other trees downwind will pick up this message and start producing extra sap to protect against the pine beetles boring into their bark. So you can't say in the, the way of, that we would talk about communication that the trees are communicating, but they are sending messages through the mycelium and through their root connections and through their aerial messages that there are other influences attacking them. So we're just beginning to understand those. If you read the search for the mother tree, we've begun to do radioactive tracing and we realize that pine trees can help birch trees and birch trees sometimes will feed back to pine trees, nutrients and water, and they send signals back and forth to each other. So this is all brand new stuff, that there are larger organisms on Earth than, than, than we know of. And then in the middle of writing this chapter, Brock says, oh, well, that's not the biggest one. There's a 2,700-acre fungal infection in the Malheur National Forest. There's one genetic organism that covers 2,700 acres. Actually, there's four patches that total 2,700 acres. But it's one genetic mycelium. So we're walking on a pad of earth that's m more living underneath us. I mean, we're used to living on blacktop and concrete, I'm sorry to say. But take your shoes off and walk across this living mass of earth. And so young people are just discovering there's so much to do out there. Is Pando going to talk to us? Pando's the name of this tree, this 103-acre aspen tree. <laughs> and th these are unanswered questions. There's a whole new interconnected world, a completely different way of looking at the universe, that it's all connected, and here it's physically connected. When you go up in the boundary waters, all of these things are connected under your feet or under the water. 
but we don't know anything about that because we've studied the world as if everything was an individual stalk of a tree. Everything was an individual organism. They don't work together. They don't communicate because we didn't know that they did, and we didn't know how they did it. And now we're just getting glimpses of that information. And uh, you can see a summary of some of this new research in Search for the Mother Tree, a very interesting paperback book. So that's the reason I wanted to do this interview, and those are the reasons that I wanted to give these properties to the people of Minnesota so that this next generation has a shot at it. Well, you've definitely answered uh, the final question I usually ask, which is, is there anything you want the audience to know? And I I think you've answered that already. I th want to thank you for doing this interview with me, Loon. Appreciate your taking all this time with me. And that's the end of part two of The Northern Loon. Thanks again to Mike Freed, better known as Loon, for agreeing to be on today's Culture Click. To keep up with all things Winona and the surrounding community, tune in to Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here at 89.5 KQAL. I'm Giovanni Bermudez. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQALFM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Mm -hmm.